You're listening to episode 157 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. It's the 30th of July 2021 here in Norwich as we're recording. And on the show today, Steph, we have Elle Griffin, who is a journalist and the creator of the novelist Substack newsletter. And I had a big, long, nerdy chat with her all about new ways that writers can make money and publish their work and make use of online creator economies and all that kind of stuff. Um, There's a lot of talk about serialized storytelling, which is obviously exactly up my street. Elle is a first-time writer. She's got her debut novel that she has finished and has been looking into different ways of getting it published. And she's angling towards going this kind of serialized hybrid route. It's really interesting. There's lots of digging into kind of emerging and new options for writers that exist Mm. both alongside traditional and self-publishing and kind of forging a slightly new path. That's exciting, isn't it? Yeah. It's good stuff. But yeah, before we get to that chat, we've had a busy week. We've had lots of creative writing online, new courses go up. Escalator is in full swing. Um, And I also wanted to mention, I uh, reworked the free resources page on the website this week. Did you, Simon Jones? Yeah, it's pretty exciting. It's quite nice to remind myself of how much amazing stuff we have on there. We have so many great resources, actually. Our, like Top tips articles, podcast conversations, writing exercises. It's mm. it's all there. I'm very pleased and proud of our free resources section. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's, there may well be podcast listeners who have never ventured into that area of the website. So do head over to nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk and then under the resources tab, you will find some free resources. And there's a lot. So yeah, we cover all sorts of stuff. There's free packs, free courses you can take. There's information and interviews on the fundamentals of writing, on world building, productivity, script writing, games writing. It kind of goes on and on. And any kind of writing that you're doing, you will find something in there that will be useful. So yeah, if you haven't delved into it, then set set yourself aside some time this weekend and have a good old rummage. Rummage! And Steph, uh, can you tell us a little bit about Creative Writing Online? We've got a brand new course, haven't we, this term? Yes. So uh, our brand new uh, tutor-assessed writing courses begin this September and October. These are the courses that we run in partnership with the University of East Anglia and their prestigious creative writing school. So these online courses are very easy for you to sign up and study from home. You can fit them in and around your busy lifestyle. And you've got experienced tutors there leading the course that will be able to provide one-on-one feedback on your work. We have a maximum of 15 students per course. So it's a small group of students that you get to know really well. You get to feedback on each other's work and offer encouragement. And as I say, you can take these from anywhere in the world. So one of the real benefits is that you get to meet like-minded writers who are, you know, studying in other countries, different time zones. It's a it's a really nice learning experience. And as Simon mentioned, we've got one brand new course, new for September. It's called Start Writing Historical Fiction. That will be tutored by Lucy Hughes Hallett. We've also got the return of our creative non-fiction courses, fiction, poetry and crime writing, as well as an extended writing fiction next steps course, which is slightly longer at 24 weeks. And that's a six month in-depth writing course for people who are looking to build on the skills that they've acquired at a more beginner level. Yeah, these courses, you can really get your teeth into them. And, you know, it's not like a a one-off weekend kind of quick thing. It's something that you'll be doing over you know a period of 12 or 24 weeks and yeah people get a lot out of them and also during lockdown it's been a bit of a lifeline to a lot of writers because it's meant that you've been able to keep in touch and keep writing and getting feedback and you know when we haven't been able to meet up in person in in our writing groups and what have you uh, the, the courses have been a really good way of doing that and keeping that momentum up Absolutely. We've had some really good feedback and these courses do always sell out. So make sure you book your place quickly to make sure that you can take part. It's also worth mentioning that at the moment, at the time of recording, we are running an early bird discount on our 12 week courses. So if you book your place on a course by Monday, the 9th of August, you will get 10% off the price. And the other big announcement this week, of course, is the lineup for this year's Noirage Crime Writing Festival. Yes, Noirage returns 
So this is the East of England's largest annual celebration of crime writing. And it's also one of the fastest growing literary festivals in the UK, which we are really, really proud of. Um, Last year, Noirage took place online for the very first time. And this year, we're running it in a hybrid format. So for everyone who tuned in last year online and watched our author events on YouTube, which were completely free of charge to sign up and watch from anywhere in the world, we will be doing the same again this year. So all of our author events and discussions and panels will be online for free. You can register from our website or from noirage.co.uk. We'll also be running some fantastic bite-sized writing workshops for anyone who's interested in the craft of crime writing. And we'll be doing those in a hybrid format. So we've got some workshops which are online, which you can take from anywhere in the world. And then we've got some that will be taking place back in Dragon Hall in Norwich for anyone who lives more locally. So our headliners for this year are... Megan Abbott. So she is going to be leading the Noirage lecture, which some will remember from last year that was given by Attica Locke. This year, Megan will be giving the lecture on the possibilities and pitfalls of adapting books for the big screen. So for giants like Netflix and HBO. Megan is She's written nine crime novels. She's an award-winning author. She's a US author. She's known for You Will Know Me and Dare Me, which is a, which is now a Netflix TV show, actually. And also she's just published her most recent book, The Turnout. We've got a headline event with David Peace, who um, is probably best known for The Red Riding Quartet, GB84 and The Damned United. And he has just finished his third book in his popular Tokyo trilogy. And this book is called Tokyo Redux. So he will be chatting to us about that book um, and about how he writes a gripping neo-noir story. And our final headliner will be Steph Cha. So Steph is another US author and her book, Your House Will Pay, has been, um, it's been explosive, really. It's been very, very popular. Lots of people reading and talking about it. So she'll be looking at how crime writing can interrogate issues of identity, structural injustice and power in the world today. We've got lots more events coming up that are soon to be announced. So do head over to noirage.co.uk, register your free tickets for all of our online events and make sure you book your place for the workshops. They are £35 each and we have very limited places. Sounds very exciting. And of course, I should mention that Noirage is taking place this year between the 9th and the 12th of September. So we're, we're keeping with our crime writing month in September. It's our annual crime writing celebration. Yeah, this is our opportunity every year to work with our friends up at UEA, in particular Henry Sutton, who's Professor of Creative Writing and Crime Fiction up at UEA and has really spearheaded the festival and the kind of focus on crime writing at the university. So yeah, check out the website for full details on all of that. Okay, so let's head into my chat with Elle Griffin. If you want to follow Elle's Substack newsletter, you can find the link down in the show notes, as well as links to all sorts of other bits and pieces that we discussed during the chat. And this is probably a conversation that's going to provoke some interesting responses and thoughts from listeners. So do let us know what you think. What angles are you taking to get your work out into the world? Are you interested in any of the techniques that Elle's talking about? You can send us some feedback on Twitter, or even better, join up to our Discord. This is a lovely community chat area we have that is full of people talking about writing and reading and books and techniques. And yeah, do head over there to let us know what you think about this episode. Okay, so uh, we'll stop talking now and hand over to Elle. Hi Elle, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Still working from home, although there is kind of hope on the horizon. Yeah, absolutely. It's so much, so much more fun to be in person again. Yes. We'll get to your Substack and your newsletter and your plans around serialized storytelling in a moment. But before we get to that, I wondered if you could give us just a little bit of background about where you come from and your career in journalism and kind of a little bit of scene setting um, before we get on to the, the fiction that we'll be talking about in a sec. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm the editor of a magazine called Utah Business in the United States. And I was have been writing a book, a novel on the side of my job now for about three years. And I finally finished it during the pandemic. And I just was like ready to press go and figure out how to get it published. 
And so I stopped writing the book and I started researching all the publishing methods. I sent the manuscript out to, um, well, I sent query letters out to um, something like 120 different agencies um, with the idea that the best way to get a book published is to send it through a traditional publishing house and hope that they market it really well. And maybe, you know, it has its best chance of success. Um, and as I'm kind of going down this route, nobody is asking for the manuscript for my book. And I know the whole time why, because the publishing houses are kind of looking for only one thing. They're looking for the books that are going to sell a hundred thousand copies and above, because that's when they start to make a profit. And my book is a niche little Gothic novel that is kind of in the vein of like an old school Count of Monte Cristo or Les Miserables or like a Dracula kind of novel. And I just think, I just think there's probably 1000 to 2000 people tops that would like such a strange little book like that. And so I started to research other methods. Um, and just because I'm already a writer by trade, I'm an editor, you know, I've, I freelance write for all these business publications. And I just, so I just started writing this article kind of to myself being like, okay, here's the best way to publish a novel. And I'm researching and interviewing all these people in the publishing industry. And what's so crazy is that none of this is shared online anywhere. Like the whole industry is just this black box of like, well, Amazon does some stuff and big publishers do some stuff, but we're not going to tell you the size of the market or how much it makes or anything like that. That would be helpful to you as a writer. Um, and so I just started kind of stalking these people online and, and getting them to talk to me and share some data with me and, and ended up turning it into an article called No One Will Read Your Book. Um, and I guess it was a little bit depressing to some people, um, but I published it and, and kind of what, what I found was just that you're, you know, nobody reads books. They read MSN and Facebook and all that kind of, they watch Netflix. Um, and the ones that do are already a niche set of the population. There's only 0.01% of the books published each year, um, sell more than a hundred thousand copies, um, but 96% of books sell less than 1,000 copies total. Um, and that's where I'm at. And so then I started thinking, okay, well, if my book's only going to sell 1,000 copies, is there any way that that could be a career in itself to just to just write these small, strange little niche books that I like to write and, and have it loved by 1,000 people? That kind of seems, that seems like a great option to me. Um, and so that's where I kind of into this world of the creator economy um, where the idea is you can monetize, if you can monetize an audience of only a thousand people and get them to say, uh, pay a monthly subscription fee of $8 a month, then you're making $100,000 a year. And there's kind of some case studies of this on Patreon where you've got some mu musicians doing that. Um, there's some artists doing that on Etsy who will sell prints and maybe a thousand people buy them, but they are making a good living because um, there's enough of them that they can monetize. Um, and then I found Substack, which is doing it. Um, it's a newsletter platform and there, there are tons and tons of nonfiction writers using the platform and people are paying, you know, $8 and up a month to just get these newsletters from these writers. And I just thought, okay, well, maybe that can work for fiction. And that's, and then I kind of presented that whole use case in another article and was like, hey, everyone, I'm going to, I'm going to publish my novel via Substack because this seems like it could be a viable option. And then it's just kind of been rolling since then. Yes. Yeah. So I think I encountered your articles with the, the one, called The One Where Writing Books is Not Really a Good Idea. Yeah, that was the second one. Yeah. Yes, I think maybe because of your journalism background, it had more kind of interviews and, and insight from other people and facts than you normally yeah. get in online articles. You, know, you get right. a lot of opinion <laughs> in online yeah, stuff. Uh, you don't always get the, the, the proper analysis. And yeah, it was really fascinating digging through it and kind of you, you sort of outline your your thought process of well, I could do it this way or this way or this way and you know the numbers repeatedly don't add up and don't don't quite make sense um right. until you get to that 
creator economy aspect. Right. And, and I think one of the, the stats you put in that was really stark was, you know, like you say, was it the New York Times saying that 98% of books that publishers released in 2020 sold fewer than 5,000 copies? And then if you compare that to, you know, the 10 best performing films on Netflix, which have 68 million views put together. And yes, they're not directly comparable, but there's there's still such a such a kind of off balancing in terms of literature uh, that for new writers in particular. It's like, how do you even start to make any any kind of progress there? Yeah, they, I think there is a direct comparison with film because now film is a huge part of how we spend our leisure time and books used to be a larger portion of how we spend our leisure time. And, you know, that's just been eroded by first radio and then video. And now that we, you know, to just, when you look at the stats and you can see that somebody spends two hours a day um, watching video content and only 15 minutes a day reading, it just goes to show you the market is already pretty small for reading as a genre and even people that love books they also love films or computer games or podcasts or whatever else it is so yeah i mean i suppose even though the mediums are are wildly different and people get different things out of them they're all competing for the the same 24 hours of any individual's life aren't they yeah and the difference with books is i mean i think with film you there is still a lot of competition there are so many movies on netflix but i think with books there are you know, 2.6 million published each year. And how many books does somebody read in a year? Maybe two to 15. So to to be one of, of the millions of books that are published, to be one that makes it onto somebody's nightstand in a year is just such a difficult process because you're you're basically only going to get there if Oprah recommended you, you saw it on Oprah or you saw it in the New York Times or maybe a friend recommended it to you. There's no, there's no place to go to discover books and, or to find books that are in the genre you might like. It's, it's very hard to discover, but I'm a voracious reader. I read more than most people in the United States. And still I struggle to find my next good book that I want to read because there's so much out there and there's no discovery. The design of a book is that even a fast reader Will, will take you know a day if they read it all the way through it will take them a day to read one book if it's a sort of average sized book um, most people will take a lot longer than that to read a book whereas you can watch you know eight movies in one day <laughs> yeah exactly so yeah immediately you're you're kind of up against a really difficult time equation yeah but this isn't to say because I've had a lot of people read these arguments and say, well, publishing books isn't a good idea. And I'm one of them. That was the title of my article. Um, Yeah, that is slightly your fault. (laughs) Yeah, it's my fault. (laughs) But um, I do think books are dead or are dying. But I don't think, but I think fiction is on the rise. So that might seem like it's counterintuitive. But when you look at the boomer generation, which had... um, the New York Times bestseller list and Oprah's book club. And we went to Barnes and Noble or whatever bookstore and saw all the out, the out forward facing book covers and chose our books that way. And then you kind of have us, this millennial generation that was then like, okay, well, I've got the Libby app from the library and I've got Kindle um, and I read on my Kindle or on my phone and I shop on bookshop or on Amazon. Um, There's Reese's book club on Instagram um, and then, and, and it all just like, it just keeps getting more convoluted, but now we've kind of got this hope point and that's Gen Z and generation Z is actually, they're not reading books. They're not like looking at the New York times bestseller list and deciding what to read, but they are following and in the inner circles of people they like online. And they'll read those people's web serials or web fiction, wherever in a discord server on a Reddit thread, um, on Wattpad, on Webtoons, and there are millions and millions and millions of Gen Zers doing this and spending an hour reading on Wattpad every day. 90 million users on Wattpad use, you know, are spending an hour a day on the platform. So they're reading fiction. They're just not reading it the way 
that the boomer generation used to. And the millennials, I, I feel definitely like stuck in the middle of this shift. I've got like 10 reading apps on my phone and I'm like, where do I go? But I do think that I think there's this kind of move away from the, you know, I'm the traditionally published book because as we know, those are all selling less than 5,000 copies um, to this web serial where I'm part of this inner circle and discord of a thousand people. And we're all talking about this interesting um, series that's going on on Instagram or that's publishing on Royal road. And, and so I think with generation Z, we have some hope that even if the book dies, the medium of fiction does not. Yeah, that's really interesting. And yeah, I feel like I need to push back a little bit on the idea of the book dying, just because if I don't, (laughs) my colleagues will probably cancel this podcast. Um, But I completely understand what you're saying is this, it's a similar existential kind of question that cinema is having, you know, um, is cinema integral to films and, and movies or is is the movie the thing and you know whether you watch it on Netflix or Blu-ray at home or whether you see it in a cinema like how important is that delivery mechanism and is is the question around the book going to be the same thing you know the book is a delivery mechanism for the story and it could well be like you say that the way people are going to receive that story is going to substantially shift yeah in the coming years and already is in fact yeah. I mean, I don't want to read a I don't want to read a hardback book. That drives me crazy because when you're laying down, you have to hold it all awkward. I'm not going to tote it around on my purse on the bus on my way to work or like pull out a big book while I'm like waiting in line at Costco, but I will look at my phone and I'll like get on my phone on my on the bus ride and like read a chapter or I'll get on my phone when I'm like waiting in line or sitting in a waiting room somewhere and I'll just read a chapter. Um, and my phone is readily available to me all day long <laughs> and I can just sit there and look at it and read. And that's mm-hmm. great. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I still love a physical book in, in a lot of ways. I mean, I think with all my other, you know, whether it's comics or films or music, I've gone entirely digital with all of those. Like the, the, the yeah. idea of going and buying a DVD seems bizarre to me now. Um, right. With books, I still enjoy the physicality of a book, but at the same time, the, the practical consideration is that I don't really have room in my house for them. Yeah. <laughs> like I've got quite a few books in the house. Yeah. I can't fit any more in them. Like it's a, right. it's a physical limitation. Yeah, totally. Something that uh, interested me is that, so you were saying that you've already written your book. Yes. So you have this finished edited manuscript that is waiting to be unleashed, but it's done and you're kind of, you know, looking for where to put it basically. Yes. Well, I wanted to do the book first. I, cause I didn't know I was going to serialize it while I was writing. I thought I was going to do the, go to the traditional route while I was writing. So, and I had never written a book before. And so you have to kind of figure out how to do that as you go. So now that I've written it, um, it took me, it took me two years to write Um, And then kind of a year of pitching and sort of editing and adjusting um, just by myself. Um, And then when I decided to serialize it, I thought, okay, well, now I'm going to give myself a year of runway. So I'm going to start serializing my book in September of 2021. And I'll release one chapter per week. And that'll get me from September of 2021 till June of 2022. And then my plan is to have a two-month break. Um, July and August, and then I'll start serializing my next book in September of 2022. So there's kind of my plan is to do a book launch every September. Every September, there's a new book that kind of publishes for a year. And this, now that I've written the first book, I realized that I can do it this way because it took me two years to write my novel, but it was a Gothic novel and it took place in 1792 New Orleans and I required a fair bit of research and I also didn't have any kind of, I didn't have any kind of goal for myself of when I needed to have it done. I was just, I just was thought, okay, well, I have two hours every morning before work starts to write. So I'll just make sure that I spend those two hours every day writing my novel. um, And that will be it. Um, But now that I've done it, I definitely think that I could write a chapter a week and have the whole thing done in a year. Um, especially my the 
the novel I'm currently writing is takes place in the future, which is just all imagination and barely any research. So it's a lot easier and more fun kind of to write in that way. So my plan is to do this year as a test as I'm serializing my um, first book on Substack, then I'll be writing my second one with the hopes that it, I really can write one chapter a week. That's kind of going to be my goal. And if I can do that, well, then my second book will be um, already done when I publish that one too, but maybe the next one I publish live and I'm doing it live. It's kind of an experiment, but for the first one, it's fully written. For the second one, I'll be a year ahead. And maybe for the third one, I'll be live or keep doing it a year ahead. Yeah, no, that, that sounds very restrained and, and clever and not something I've ever managed to do myself. <laughs> but you're a one-head writer. I know I am, but I'm, I'm never uh, ahead of myself. So I very much live write. And, uh, you always live write? Yes. Yeah. Oh, um, cool. Which, yeah, so I have done three novels now on Wattpad and it's very much been write a chapter, publish a chapter every week which works really well for me. Um, it's obviously quite a different thing because what you have is a manuscript that you've finished and then had time to edit and got it to a point where you're like, right, this is ready to go out into the world. Whereas the way I've done it is to publish as I go. So inevitably, the quality that's going out is more of a first draft. Obviously, I try and make it as good as possible and as readable as possible. But I think the readers understand that as well. They know that they're getting kind of insight, first access to this thing as it's being created, which is another part of why this kind of new way of putting books out is is quite exciting. Yeah. And if for some, you know, any readers who are interested in the process of writing, you know, it's 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 a kind of a way of experiencing a book that you've never really had, or not in recent times anyway. So something I wanted to touch upon is the fact that you know serialized novels serialized storytelling in this form is not like some brand new internet thing it's something that used to be really common yeah um and then everyone forgot about it <laughs> <laughs> yeah well the publishing industry got involved <laughs> yeah and it feels like because you know we're talking about dickens and you mentioned cat monte cristo and you know i grew up loving uh isaac asimov science fiction and a lot of his stuff was originally put out as short stories and later on was compiled into novels and that was a fairly accepted and standardized way for long form storytelling to go out. Um, And then it feels like TV and radio took over and the literature just sort of stopped doing it. Yeah, I know. I don't, I don't know why. (laughs) And and if you watch a a television show that still works that way, they don't have all 10 seasons done and then they release them and edit, go back and edit them. They are writing them as they go. And Novels totally used to be that way. As you're saying, like Charles Dickens, Alexander Dumas, those were some of my favorite favorite writers. And those books are long. And it's not because they just sat there and wrote for 10 years in obscurity. It's because they were writing as part of a feuilleton, which was like a, a, a fiction portion of the newspaper. Just like today, you might have a comics section of the newspaper. You know, back then it was like the top half of the newspaper, you know, the newspapers folded the top half is the news and then you flip it over and the bottom half is the, the most recent chapter of the Count of Monte Cristo. And those writers, because it was serialized in that way, those writers were getting paid by the word from an editor rather than being paid for an entire book for $10. <laughs> um, so like Alexander Dumas, who wrote Count of Monte Cristo, that book came out in 18 installments over two years in the Journal des Debats, which was like a Parisian newspaper that went out to 10,000 people locally. Um, and he was paid the equivalent today of $64,000 per installment. Per he's, he's got 18 of those. So he's being paid <laughs> per chapter. He was making two hundred dollars to $400,000 a year as a fiction writer because he was serializing his content. And then somewhere along the lines, we were like, why don't you just write that whole thing? And we're not going to tell you if we're going to pay you for it or not until you've already spent 10 years writing it. Um, And then maybe if we're interested, if we like it, then maybe we'll publish it. Um, And if you, if we do, well, 
it'll be, you know, it'll just be a one, one time drop. It'll have six weeks on the market to really do all it's going to ever you're going to do. And then it's going to fade into obscurity because it was a one time drop. And if you saw it, when it dropped, you saw it, if you didn't, it's gone. It was just like such a horrible way to market fiction. If you ask me. Yeah. No, it's very odd that the, the model of, of writing and publishing where a writer is paid regularly. Yeah. <laughs> Regardless of the amount, but the fact that that went out the window and disappeared at some point in the 20th century is peculiar. And um, I'm, I'm an editor for my job. I get paid per article, not per 15 articles I do, you know, and that's how I'm able to make a full-time living as a writer. Um, and and to your point about, oh, well, if I'm serializing that live, that means I'm writing a chapter per week and I don't get to go back and do the whole editing thing. Well, neither did a lot of the writers that published in the 18th and 19th centuries. They didn't go back and do a huge edit. That's that's like a new thing that we developed because the publishing industry was like, we like this book, but if we change it this way, it'll be more commercially viable for the audience we're trying to market it to. And they're trying to edit it for the audience. Whereas if, you, if you're serializing it, it's, it's a... It is a different kind of writing, but it's, um, I think it's a better, especially coming from the editorial world where I'm used to like just perfecting the one article and then I turn it in for a book. I want to do the same thing. I want to perfect my one chapter, publish it, perfect my next chapter, publish it. I don't want to go back. I didn't go back and do a huge edit with my first novel. I wrote one draft and Mm. that was it. And I think that's, that's ends up being the draft that you as a writer want to put out anyway. We speak to and work with so many writers who, you know, even if they get their first book published, that in no way means that they are financially set. You know, they then have the the struggle towards the second, the third, the fourth, you know, it's very few writers that are able to become professional full-time writers without, you know, supporting it with some other, some other role. So yeah, it does feel like as a model, there are, there are things to be fixed. Yeah, you have to let me see the stats. So if you if you as an author are if you traditionally publish a book, you're making about 15% royalties. If you self-publish a book, you're making about 70% of the royalties. So if you want to make a salary of say a hundred thousand dollars a year, then you need to you need your books, you need to sell between um see 45,000 copies traditionally or 24,000 copies self-published and as we talked about that's very 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 few books that sell that many copies Um, and that's why a lot of kindle unlimited authors that do well they're putting out like two books a month because their hope is if they get a small even if they get 10,000 people to read the first one then they get another 10,000 to read the second one and they're they end up having but they end up reaching that 20,000 copies a month um, with all of their books combined. Yeah, but you also end up on. I mean, you know, I guess when I'm doing my week by week thing, it's a bit of a, a bit of an endless kind of treadmill putting down the tracks in front of you thing. But yeah, you know, if you're having to, you know, pump out these books for Amazon, you know, multiple books per year, then that's that's easier said than done, and it's just it's not something that all writers can do. And it depends on what kind of genre you want to write as well. You know, it's, that's not always an option for you. Right. That's really more viable in romance and fantasy where readers are just buying up book after book after book. And romance novels are usually shorter, like 50,000 to 60,000 words in length. Um, And fantasies, you can kind of, they end up up being longer, but they have, we'll do like seven of them in a series, which just causes people to keep reading and keep reading and keep reading and keep reading forever. And that's why those two genres can do really well on Kindle, but other, other genres. Yeah. To your point, it's not, not as lucrative or feasible. Yeah. Yeah. You don't tend to see kind of eight book series of some literary fiction. That's just just not how it works. Definitely not. The kind of resurgence of serialized storytelling is something that I, I suppose stumbled upon maybe around 2014, perhaps. Um, so I think I found out about the website Wattpad maybe around 2012. Um, I was kind of looking around for somewhere to put short stories that I was writing at the time. And I had my own blog, which was kind of, you know, back in the day, that's what you did. But no one ever really 
no one never read them. It, it always felt like you're just sort of sticking up somewhere and nothing ever really happened. And you know, this that was also, which seems weird to think, that was fairly early in the days of social media as well. So yeah. just getting people to hear about things you were working on was a lot harder back then. Um, and then I found out about Wattpad, which is, for anyone who's listening who doesn't know, it's, uh, it's kind, I always think, describe it as being kind of like YouTube for words. Mm. So it's a free platform. Anyone can published their writing on it much like youtube that means that there's an awful lot of rubbish on it but if you know what you're looking for and you know where to go there's also some really really great stuff on there and um you know it's the full spectrum from you know amazing stuff to to not so amazing um and i tried putting up a few short stories didn't really gain much traction and then a few years later i kind of came back to it and realized that the the platform was really suited to serialized storytelling. So rather than putting up a one-off short story and going, there you go, here's 5,000 words. Um, instead, you're putting up a long form story that week by week or whatever your schedule is, you're building on it. Because if you get a couple of people to read the first chapter, they follow the book. Next week, you put, put up another chapter, they get notified. So they immediately come back. Some other people discover it and you end up with this kind of cumulative effect of more and more readers discovering the book but rather than being a one-off thing every week you put up a new chapter is a new way a new opportunity to find new readers so by the time you get to an end of you know a a 30 chapter book or something it can actually have grown quite successfully and quite satisfactorily i mean that's exactly what i think that's the tv series model and i think that makes so much more sense because you're going to keep picking up people for 10 years on Grey's Anatomy, whereas you drop The Revenant once and it's like everybody watches it in one month and then you don't hear about it again 10 years later. It's completely an old film. Mm-hmm. So I don't know why those were the two examples that popped in my <laughs> Very specific examples. <laughs> I've never even seen The Revenant and I don't watch Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> Just- um, it's been interesting actually in terms of TV because Netflix have kind of pushed everyone towards dropping entire seasons of a TV show mm-hmm. in one one go so they're still making the shows a season at a time but then it all appears at once which kind of breaks the serialized model a little bit and everyone was very excited about this for years because it lets you watch it on your own schedule your own pace and that's really good in all sorts of ways but now disney plus have shifted to this completely different format where they've got well i said it's basically what they used to do on tv which is one episode per week and it kind of slows down that conversation and like you were talking about earlier it means that you have you're kind of in the public eye you're in people's brains for a lot longer so and also everyone is kind of forced to be at the same pace so every week you have people discussing that episode or that chapter and that's another thing that i think literature just completely misses out on through either traditional or kind of normal self-publishing, I suppose. Oh, yeah. In the 19th century, The Count of Monte Cristo was like Game of Thrones. And that was released, you know, one episode every week. And we were all hanging off of that. And did you see what happened in the most recent battle? You know, and that's how The Count of Monte Cristo was. Everyone was like, did you see that Edmond Dantes escaped the Chateau d'If in a body bag? Like, ah, crazy. (laughs) So I think that having that everybody on the same page in real time is definitely a benefit for the book and the writer who's just continually, like you said, popping up next chapter, next chapter. Something I found, because when I first started using Wattpad to serialize a book, it was very much an experiment. I didn't know if I would be able to do it. I didn't know if I'd sort of keep up with the pace of it. I also had no idea if people would be interested. Um but what I discovered, it was firstly that people were interested without me having to put in a huge amount of kind of promotional or marketing work. You know, readers just appeared from yeah. <laughs> from the world. Um, because like I was saying earlier, there's the, the issue is not a shortage of readers. It's just that they're kind of coming at fiction from different directions. But something I hadn't quite anticipated is how useful it was as a kind of motivation and an aid to my productivity. So, you know, for 30 plus years, I had not written a book despite telling myself I was a novelist or wanted to be a writer and all this kind of stuff. You know, it was always something I was going to do at some point. And since I started publishing on Wattpad around 2015, I've now written three novels. 
And that's because of the way I published it. Because even at the start, when there was you know a handful of readers waiting for the next chapter, the knowledge that they were there made sure I got on the computer and wrote the next chapter. Because it wasn't just sitting like on the hard drive or in a drawer of my desk. And if nothing happened with it, no one would know. You know, it was a public thing that had to happen. And how useful that can be to kind of banish writer's block or concerns or, you know, the ability to get distracted by other shiny things. Yeah, you have readers, you have an audience that are waiting for your next chapter. You have to, you have to give that to them. Mm -hmm. An incentive. And the... And the physical book in this case, um, um, I think it becomes less the um, rule and more the exception in the web novel world because now you've got a book that can be an incentive, um, more less as the way that you're reading the book and more as a novelty that you purchase after the book is done and you want to pay for this premium tier that lets you have this physical copy. You know, I, I think about like Brandon Sanderson, who who is a prolific fantasy writer and publishes his book traditionally, but he did a Kickstarter campaign to produce a leather bound edition of his most prized book and raised six million dollars because everybody wanted this and they've all already read it. They're not buying it at the bookstore in this leather bound copy. They're paying a, more than a hundred dollars to get a leather bound edition of one of their favorite books and have it in their home. It's like the equivalent of buying a wand at Ollivander's in, in Harry Potter Park. It's You're not actually going to use the wand, <laughs> but it's like part of that world. And I think that becomes this kind of extra layer around that fandom. Yeah, well, I guess that turns the physical object into something special. So rather than it being another book that I have to somehow fit into my house. Right. Um, and, you know, I love books. I'm very... I'm very happy that I have loads of books on shelves and, you know, I've got an eight-year-old son. I think it's important, particularly with young kids, to have physical books around the place yeah, so yeah. that they can just pick them up and discover them and that kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, at a certain point, I think you – it's those kind of special editions of things yeah. that become what you're after, uh, whereas actually just to read the story, you kind of want to get at it in the most convenient way possible. Yes. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, going back to what we were saying at the start in terms of – reader numbers for traditionally published books you know that's kind of the new york times article was partly pointing out how hard it is to make a living as a writer but even if you kind of discount the financial side of that it's also just not that many readers i think that's kind of the 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 bigger tragedy in some ways that these writers are writing this stuff and putting so much effort into it and so few people are actually discovering it uh, particularly when you compare it to other other mediums like games or movies or music. And that's something else that kind of the newer online platforms are breaking through because suddenly books are being read millions of times. Or even in the case of a smaller writer like myself, suddenly my books are being read by thousands of people. And the notion of that still amazes me. And it's not something that was possible 10 plus years ago, let alone you know, the further back you go. It's just, it wouldn't be an option. Much the same as YouTube has kind of transformed the notion of the short film for for new filmmakers. You know, you don't, before you'd be lucky if your film got shown at a festival and be seen by a hundred people. Now you can put it online and millions of people see it if it's good. Yeah. Uh, Online, you you suddenly are operating on a completely different scale once again. And like the most successful people on Wattpad or Substack or wherever uh, are getting massive audiences which even big names on television struggle to get sometimes these days. And it's that kind of direct link to the people who are specifically interested in in your particular thing, whatever it may be. Yeah, I think it's always been an uphill battle for artists because that's just always going to be the case, whether you're a sculptor or a painter or a writer or um, whatever. We I actually got into a debate with some people on a Reddit thread because... Um, I was saying that, you know, I mean, well, it's an uphill battle if you're a writer, no matter what, to try to get get people to read your writing. And some people were saying, well, then you're better off being a, a screenplay writer because because films are so prolific. And then all the screenplay writers jumped in and were like, no, you can't <laughs> make a living as a screenplay writer. We've all written screenplays. They, to get a screenplay picked up is 
they're basically saying it's the same odds as getting your work picked up by a publishing house or something. It's just there's so many screenplay writers out there trying to make it and finally getting one made into a movie is, is an uphill battle just like it is anywhere. Um, but I do think that that's the benefit of the direct-to-consumer route if we can bypass the studio that greenlights or doesn't greenlight a script or the publishing house that greenlights or doesn't greenlight a book. Then we have endless opportunity. And I think you kind of said something earlier about, well, when you don't have the gatekeeper, there's a bunch of rubbish out there. And and I think that's the number one argument people use against self-publishing is they say, well, when you when you allow self-publishing into the mix, then there's all this rubbish out there. You 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 know, you have the whole trash bin, all you know, all the bad stuff, the slush piles in there too. Um, but I would actually say that I kind of disagree with that because I think that there's probably at least a thousand readers for every single writer that exists. Um, even if to me, it's really, really bad writing and I really hate the topic. Um, if they were just in the right circle or the right community of other people that are into things like that and even into reading a rough draft or or had the same language barriers or whatever made it bad that I thought made it bad, other people might really, really like that. And so the problem isn't, the problem isn't that we don't have a filter. It's that we don't have a sifter that can sift all of that rubbish into piles that are consumable by the tiny little communities that will love them. <laughs> yeah. And also, you know, someone, I mean, Wattpad grew out of fan fiction originally, if yeah. you go back 10 years. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a lot of Harry Potter, Twilight, One Direction fan fiction on there. And, um, but, you know, a lot of those teenage writers who might have been, you know, 14, 15 when they were first doing that, they're, they're now 10 years older and yeah. they're writing different things and they want to read different things. And that's why, you know, on that platform, it, it's spread out so drastically into you know, all sorts of different kinds of writing. But if those writers hadn't been given that kind of opening to write the stuff that, you know, from an outside observer, maybe wasn't that great. But 10 years later, they might not have gone on to write something that was really amazing. And fan fiction is a great example, because if you like Harry Potter, why not join the community of a bunch of people that like Harry Potter, and you're all writing fan fiction about it? I mean, that's that's the perfect example of finding your community where you'll like the kind of writing people are writing and you'll you can be um, reading the kind of things you want to read because you're automatically in that community. That I think that's what Wattpad is doing really well um, is that it's like you can find and follow a writer all through their career, <clears throat> every one of their books. You know, I think that we're starting they're starting to be a sifter. But I do think that Wattpad, how they do their sifting of putting books into categories that other people will like, they use an algorithm. And I know that sometimes that works for writers and sometimes it doesn't. Like you'll you'll talk to some Wattpad writers and they're like, nobody's read my book. And then you talk to others and they're like, millions read, read my book and I have no idea why. Do you have any kind of grasp on that? Yeah, I mean, you can definitely see that work. But it, as you say, in completely obtuse, yeah. opaque ways where you can't you can't really tell what's going on. I mean, I I largely ignore that and just write the book that I want to write. And I don't know if I've just got lucky. I mean, I, I you know I'm not on the kind of like millions of readers level of Wattpad, but yeah. I'm on I'm on a level that, from my perspective, I think is incredibly exciting and amazing. But yeah, it's exactly why that happened is is hard to say because they do have this odd mixture of sort of hand curated and algorithmic uh, curation that kind of mashes together in a very unpredictable, slightly peculiar manner. Um, And yeah, I don't know if they're ever going to kind of shine a light on, on that and how that works. I see some, and that's why I can't figure out is the, is the answer an algorithm that will, I get on Wattpad every day and it immediately shows me you would like these books because you've read these books. Um, or is it more me being a part of community of a community online, like a discord server or something where other people are into the same kind of books that I read and, and we're all, we're all learning about those books there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Goodreads kind of tried to be that 
like recommender for a while, but it also seems like that's also become very hard to sift through. So yeah, it's difficult. And I'm trying to remember how I stumbled upon your article and I have no memory of how, like what the, the weird route was that led me there. But I think that's probably a good example of, I, I almost certainly had it recommended to me by a person at some point, yeah. like it would have been linked to from another writer or on a discord server somewhere or something like that. And yeah, the more you can make those connections either directly, you know, through something like discord where you are actively interacting with people or just by following people's newsletters or following their writing on whatever platform they're on, then yes, yeah, uh, that kind of networking effect can be really interesting, but I find myself just naturally gravitating towards other writers and, you know, as I was reading your article, I was like, oh, this is amazing. This is someone else who's as into serialized storytelling as I am. And then I was like, actually, that's probably not a surprise because like everything I do (laughs) is about this. So it's probably not a great mystery that like there's some connection formed there. In the same circles already. Mm. Yeah. I think the value of the newsletter too is then you have this owned list of people where, you know, theoretically, if Wattpad suddenly went bankrupt, you might lose all of your readers and then you'd have to start a platform somewhere else or, you know, that could be difficult. Whereas with a newsletter, you've always got that one-on-one contact and you can direct them to your Wattpad or to your Kickstarter campaign or your Patreon or whatever. Um, And I know like Brandon Sanderson, how he did his Kickstarter was he has an email list of 200,000 people on it. Um, So when he was like, anybody want a leather bound book? Like (laughs) 30,000 of them were like, yes. And by the way, it was only 30,000 people that spent that $6 million. So they're, you know, a small crowd can raise a lot of money. Um, But I think having that direct connection with your audience on some kind of platform is very crucial because for that very reason, it's like the algorithms might not be great. Things might change, but if you always maintain some kind of contact, it's helpful. Yeah. You never want to wholly rely on, one company's random algorithm because it might work for your book one day but all they have to do is is tweak a number and suddenly you disappear like facebook pages remember when those used to be so valuable and then facebook changed their algorithm and was like now only 10 percent of your followers will see your your posts unless you want to pay give us all the money (laughs) and then everyone with pages was like i guess i'm going to start an instagram account (laughs) yeah it does feel a little bit you know, we've had the we've had ten years of kind of massive scale social media self promotion, which has kind of ended up going down its own rabbit hole. If that's that's not really a phrase, but I'll go with that. <laughs> um, yeah. And you know, I think it's left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. Like it doesn't necessarily do what people thought it was going to do when the likes of Twitter and Facebook mm-hmm. first appeared, and the emergence of stuff like Substack where it's, it is a lot more personable from the off and it it kind of deliberately is smaller scale, which doesn't mean it can't end up being wildly successful, but you know, it's not a kind of like a blast out to the whole world kind of Twitter type approach. It's very much right. I'm doing this thing and it will appeal to very particular type of people. Yeah. And the benefit with, with Substack, I think is, is for you know people listening that maybe have never heard of it is it's it's a free newsletter you can have as many newsletter subscribers as you want completely free um, and each newsletter kind of posts like a blog to your own Substack page um, and then and then you can have those readers pay for some kind of premium written offering and so what's nice about that is and and Substack has some data about this they can say well. Whatever, however many of your free subscribers you have, about 10% of those will probably pay for a premium subscription. So I have 2,600 newsletter subscribers right now. Um, 260 of them might pay for to receive my book via email. Um, so you can kind of upsell your free community, sort of like you can on Patreon. The, the difference with Patreon is you don't have that free tier. So you have to have that somewhere else like a newsletter and then lead somebody to patreon but i think that's a huge benefit because you have that owned community and then you can have a sold offering to them yeah and it feels like because back in the day you know i'd i'd have my website with a blog on it and then i'd maybe use mailchimp 
to have yeah. to have a newsletter and you know the, the tip you gave just now which is that all writers should have a newsletter if you don't have one at the moment go and start one straight away because even if you've got no one on it yet you want to start building that as soon as you can even if you are going down the traditionally published route most traditionally published writers have one these days <laughs> you have to yeah in yeah. fact it was um, a lot of the people I interviewed for my publishing story told me that we won't even look at a writer if they don't have at least a thousand newsletter subscribers or um, 10,000, you know, followers on Twitter. They want you to have a built-in audience no matter where you go. So mm-hmm. no matter how you publish your book, it's good to have some kind of some kind of platform. And I definitely did the WordPress and the MailChimp thing back in the odds. That was like the original, the original way. But um, I have 2,600 newsletter subscribers now and MailChimp charges you after 2,000 of them. So I would be paying like $50 a month right now if I was on MailChimp, even though I'm earning no money. So I'd basically be paying to connect with my audience. I think that's the benefit of something like Substack where you can have it be completely free and you're you're only paying Substack if you're making money. Yeah, and you know, Patreon works off a similar-ish model, but yeah. the, the thing I've found with that is it's almost a bit too complicated for what I want. Like it yeah. is a little too kind of obsessed with being Patreon, if you see what I mean, where <laughs> Substack is your own writing and yeah. Substack itself as a structure is is very minimal and out of the way. So you're not kind of constrained into uh, you know maintaining a Patreon page as well as doing your other thing. <laughs> right. And Substack is just for writers um, whereas Patreon is like musicians too, or you've got a YouTube channel, monetize it with Patreon. So it's not ideally set up for fiction. You can put fiction on there, but you can't read it well the way that it comes up. Um, is It's just like not a, an ideal experience. In terms of what is going to be paid and what is free, is your plan that essentially your nonfiction, so you know your articles on writing and publishing technique and that kind of thing, remains free. And then your fiction, the, the book itself, is the paid aspect. Yes. So I write a weekly newsletter kind of about this whole, pro- like documenting my process of putting my serial fiction online. Um, and then that's, and that's totally free. And then when I launch my book in September, my first four chapters will be completely free and will go out to everybody on my newsletter list. Um, and then come October, chapter five, um, you'll have to pay to read it. So my kind of hope is if you get hooked in the first four chapters, you'll want to support the project and like follow along throughout the end. And there'll be some added benefit, like we can join a Discord community together and talk about it and um, I am going to do a, a hardback edition for subscribers at a certain pricing level. Um, and like, a, you know, there'll be options to, if you want to be mentioned in the acknowledgement section of my book or write the forward to my book. Um, and I'm also going to have a um, wrap party at the end for a certain tier of people who want to support it further and like come meet me in person and hang out and like have a dinner party together. Um, so there's kind of these added value you can add where it's not just like you're getting four chapters for $5, whereas you can buy a whole book on Kindle for $5. I get that there's, you know, that seems like it would be better for the reader, but you get to be part of a whole community and like be part of this whole thing playing out. And I think that's pretty fun. I would yeah. do that if, if Victor Hugo had a sub stack, I would totally follow it. <laughs> I'd probably pay a lot of money for each new chapter of Les Mis to come out. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, th- I think the interesting question that's going to increasingly come up is, you know, people like us who are, you know, trying to gain a foothold and find new ways to break in as a writer. Uh, that's that's mm-hmm. kind of what's happening at the moment. But, you know, Brandon Zanson's an, an interesting case, but I feel like increasingly there will be highly successful traditional authors who are going to start kind of glancing in this direction because yeah. those people who already have massive followings they could just jump over to this and <laughs> be ridiculously successful yeah. from the off. And you know, as that kind of realization spreads, it's going to be interesting to see how the publishing industry reacts, I think. Yeah, that, I mean, there already are some doing it. I saw um, 
Cheryl Strayed, who wrote Wild, the book Wild, and that was like a movie with Reese Witherspoon. She developed a huge platform from her book being published the traditional way. And now she has a sub stack where you can pay $5 a month to like get her newsletter. And um, so many people do it. I think she's making pretty good money doing that. So I think that's like a great, as soon as we start seeing those sort of mass players come into to this world, I think it'll only become more exciting. Yeah. I think something that appeals because you know, I'm, very much looking into this as well. Since I read your article, I've been poking at Substack quite a bit. And yeah, there are alternatives. I, I was looking at something called Button Down, which is kind of a slightly more mm-hmm. low-key open source thing, but yeah, similar kind of structure. But but regardless, it feels, you know, the, the kind of last 10 years of writing in one place and then having to like shout on Twitter and shout on Facebook and shout on this place yeah. and over here. And it, yeah. there's a certain slightly unpleasant kind of aspect of self-promotion to it. Whereas it kind of feels like the newsletter model that is, it's kind of old in a way, but it's now being re- repurposed. Uh, it feels like the promotion is the thing itself to yeah. a greater degree. So you spend less time, you know, trying to repackage yourself and and be a marketer and more time just writing good stuff. And the newsletter format kind of promotes that naturally anyway. Yeah, I mean... The cool thing is, is that Substack has it all built in. So, you know, I have my newsletter subscribers and probably the same 10 to 20 people are the same people that comment on my articles each month. I'm sure there's a bunch of people reading it, but the same 10 people or so are the active commenters and they comment and they're also Substack writers. You can see their comment below my post and then you can click on their name and it'll take you to their Substack. Um, and and then you can see that and you're like, oh, I like this subsect too. I'll subscribe to that one. So it kind of creates this interweb of uh, like a kind of built-in community around your substack where it's not just you publishing something, but you can discover other newsletters that way through through that. Um, so I do think they're and I, they seem to just be going more and more in that direction now too. You can see, you can click on somebody's name and see. Um, the whatever Substack they write and like the 20 newsletters they're subscribed to. It's like a kind of built-in blog role. Yeah. And, you know, from my personal perspective, you know, I've had success on Wattpad that I, I never imagined I would have, which is fantastic. But, yeah. you know, the elephant in the room is that I've had a lot of readers, but I've made absolutely no money off any of that writing. And, you know, what you're doing and other people it's obviously intriguing to me because it's kind of compatible with what I've been doing so far, but potentially opens up interesting new avenues where, you know, for example, I could continue publishing on Wattpad, but do a kind of early access Substack where like a month ahead of time, people can read it earlier if they want to. And it's, there's something nice about the kind of voluntary opt-in kind of aspect to it where it doesn't feel like you're trying to sort of bait and switch or take people for a ride or trick people somehow into giving you money you know it's a very kind of honest exchange it feels like and Wattpad doesn't require your rights neither does um Kindle so there's nothing preventing and I'm absolutely going to do this there's nothing preventing me from publishing my novel on Substack only to my paid my paid subscribers for a year and then after I'm done publishing it, I'm going to post it on Wattpad. I'm going to serialize it over three months on Wattpad. I'm going to put it on Kindle. You know, maybe I'll put it on Inkit or some other pot. Like you can put it anywhere um, and for free. And I'll be like, okay, everyone who missed it, then you guys can go read that for free now. And by the way, I'm publishing my second novel on Substack. If you liked that and you want to come pay for the next one, you don't want to wait for it to come out in a year. You can come read it right now. And it's a premium tier. So I think that's what's the benefit of all these platforms is you can kind of you can kind of game it a little bit like that. Yeah, and it's it's kind of moved the conversation on because for a long time the big question around the internet was well everything's free, so how can yeah. anyone kind of make any money, you know, whether it's individuals or the larger companies, you know, for a long time people were like how does YouTube make any money? And obviously right. they've kind of solved that issue. Um yeah. But yeah, from from the individual creator perspective, it feels like there is now an answer. You know, whether it's going to be the answer, I guess we're still right. figuring that one out. But yeah. it's, it feels like an exciting time to be doing this kind of stuff. I mean, as writers, I feel like filmmakers and some of the more visual mediums had this kind of like a decade ago, 
where the video platforms suddenly matured and opened up completely new ways of getting into the industry or forming <laughs> your own industry. And I wonder whether, although the ebook has been around for ages, um, it feels like the moment we're in now is actually got more of the innovation and potential. Yeah. And I think it's only going to get more that way. You know, when I think about the future of fiction and where this is heading, it's, you know, I see the ability to find and follow writers we love, just like we do on Twitter, to be able to subscribe to those writers, just like we do on Substack, to be able to read their books as they come out, just like we do on Wattpad, you know, to read those books on an app on our phone, just like we do with Kindle, um, to support those writers financially with subscriptions, just like we do on Patreon, and be a part of their exclusive community, just like we are in Discord. Um, And I think that if somebody comes out with one mega publishing app that can combine all of those technologies, then, and there are certainly players starting to get involved there. And I think Wattpad is one of them that might, will kind of open up some of those avenues. And we're starting to see even Amazon starting to feel threatened and launch Amazon Vela. So I think there's starting to be some intrigue about this kind of creating this fiction platform. And I mm-hmm. think that will definitely be where this is all headed. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I put sort of nonfiction up on Medium and they, they've been in doing some interesting acquisitions and yeah. fiddling around around the edges uh, this year as well. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of companies doing interesting things. Um, I mean, very few of those companies are traditional publishers at all. It's, it's very yeah. much the tech industry that are kind of leading the charge, as seems to be the case. Yeah, yeah. Medium purchased Glows, which is, um, it's basically just like Kindle, except that you can make notes in the margins of your book and comment on like specific sentences in a book or something. And other people can see those too. And you kind of create this social experience around reading a book. So it's very similar. And I kind of thought for a while that when Medium bought them, they would integrate with Glows and it would become this kind of Medium and Glows together kind of thing. But it doesn't really seem like that's where they're headed yet. But Still, I think there's some some options there. So it'll be exciting. Absolutely. And we're all the, you and me are the early adopters that are going to try to test out some different methods and see what works. And yeah. probably the big, the big platforms will be like, okay, now that we know, we'll do this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I feel like we, we might have to do a follow-up conversation on this yeah. like a year, year and a bit from yeah. now. Once, exactly. you've, once you've had your book out there. Maybe you go paid with Wattpad or something. <laughs> Figure it out. Absolutely. So if people want to check out your Substack newsletter, where should they go? lgriffin.substack.com. So it's just E-L-L-E-G-R-I-F-F-I-N.substack.com. Great. Well, we'll put links down in the show notes to make it nice and easy for people to find it. But yeah, if anyone listening is doing their own experiments in in these arenas or or ones that we haven't mentioned, haven't heard of, then do let us know because I think both of us are keen to know everything. <laughs> Absolutely. Bring it on. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, El, thank you so much for your time today and best of luck with the book launch when you get there in September. And yeah, keep us posted. I will. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening and thanks to Elle for sharing so much information about what she's up to. If you have any questions or want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writer Centre. Check out our Facebook page and head over to our website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk where you can find out full details of everything we're doing and sign up to our weekly newsletter. As a UK registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation today by heading over to nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk and going to the support us page. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again. Keep writing and we will catch you next week. Mm